We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Caitlin Chin, I work at CSAS, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by not one, but two brilliant researchers at the intersection of technology and democracy. First is my CSAS colleague, Julia Brock, who will be co-hosting today's episode with me. Hi, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Next, we have Megan Shahi, who is joining us from the Center for American Progress, where she is the Director of Technology Policy. Happy to be here. Thank you both. Today's conversation will focus on elections, specifically how social media platforms are preparing for the national or local elections that will take place in over 50 countries around the world in 2024, including but not limited to Egypt, South Africa, Tunisia, Brazil, Mexico, India, Taiwan, and then, of course, the United States. Megan recently published a report on this topic called Protecting Democracy Online in 2024 and Beyond, which is currently available on the Center for American Progress website. After spending the majority of her career promoting transparency and accountability at some of the world's most influential social media companies, she was a crisis manager in Meta's first ever U.S. election war room in 2018. In addition, she architected Instagram's product and content policies for its video product reels and guided Twitter's strategy to comply with the EU's new Digital Services Act. So, Megan, so thrilled to sit down with you today. I was wondering if you could start by telling us how your professional experiences in social media shaped your perspectives and views of the 2024 election landscape today. So what lessons did you take away from past cycles and how did that bring you to join CAP and publish this report? Absolutely. Thank you again both for for having me and thank you to CSIS for hosting this podcast. Really excited to be here. Like you said in your introduction of me, I have spent the last uh, six or seven years in social media working on transparency and accountability within big tech. It has oftentimes felt like swimming up a creek or rowing up a creek, but without a paddle. (laughs) And now, as Caitlin mentioned, I'm at the Center for American Progress working on these same issues, but from a really kind of different perspective. And so as I think about the kind of arc of my career, I started off in government. I worked at Treasury and the White House and then decided to kind of pivot to the private sector to really see how do end users get impacted by certain policies or products? Because at the federal level, you sort of have the 50,000 foot view. And I wanted to really see what happens at the at the ground floor. And so I pivoted to the tech sector. And when I was there, I was working in crisis management and product policy in a couple different roles. But what I saw was that there is this real kind of underbelly, as I describe it, of social media. And there is a lot of sort of darkness and misinformation and and harm and hate speech that happens on these platforms and is often nearly impossible for the platforms to really tackle at, at full bore because of the scale that they're happening. And in 2018, like Caitlin said, I served in Meta's war room, and this was the first time that they stood up something like that, and that was really in response to what happened in 2016. And so 
in that experience, it was about six weeks leading up to the election. I was on the front lines managing crises as they kind of came in. And this related to content ads, to political figures, to accounts being taken down, to threats of foreign interference, like really the full gamut of risks. And through that, I decided that I wanted to move up the sort of chain of reaction, if you will, to being where I was, which was very reactive, to being more proactive in my approach. And so pivoted to writing product policy. And that's where I was in the room with engineers and product managers and designers advocating for things like transparency, algorithmic um, ranking choices that were clear to users and unbiased, as unbiased as they could be. And through that, I really learned how tough it is inside of the companies to advocate for these issues when you're really a needle in a haystack at times. And then I pivoted to Twitter where I did similar work, but, you know, for the for the different products that Twitter had. And what I learned through all of that is that at the end of the day, these are for profit institutions that have incentives at the absolute foundation of the company that are aligned towards growth, profitability, advertisements, more users, more engagement of those users. And advocating for things like accountability and transparency was important and very critical work, but constantly sort of butted up against those incentives that I spoke about earlier. And so with that, I decided after being laid off by Elon Musk in November, that it was maybe a sign from the universe to take my experience over the past six or seven years and pivot towards implementing really sound and influencing sound public policies in D.C. that could maybe up-level the conversation between what's happening in D.C. at the federal policymaking level and what's happening in Silicon Valley or proverbial Silicon Valley in the in the big tech sector. And I think I really am trying to be more of a bridge between two worlds that have not maybe had enough engagement thus far. So that's that's where I am today. And excited to, to be advancing this work. Awesome. And it sounds like your report is really the next big step into kind of taking some more of those proactive steps. So when you're looking at 2024 and anticipating what may come in these various election cycles, what are some of the biggest threats and risks in countering election misinformation that you have your eye on? Absolutely. I think there's a few. So the first one I would say, and, and you may have heard this in the past, but it's scale. This has been a problem for uh, social media platforms for as long as they have existed and for, uh, and, and it will continue to be a problem. But as I think about 2024 in particular with over 50 elections and hundreds and hundreds of different languages that need support with regard to content and ad review and everything kind of related to how companies support content happening around an election, there is just a, a massive amount of investment that's going to be required. And that's up against a backdrop of layoffs of really critical election roles, including people who speak, you know, really niche but critical languages around the world. And I know you guys at CSIS are thinking about that quite a bit. And so that's, I think, challenge number one is just tackling the scale of what's going to happen next year. And then, of course, Challenge two, I think, would be just widespread mis- and disinformation about election process, about voting days, times, sort of the basic tenets of an election are often now questioned on social media, which I think is unfathomable for some of us to even really grapple with, but is unfortunately our reality now. And so that 
is really the responsibility of platforms and, and media publishers and others to ensure that authoritative information is getting out there and, and upranked and really at the forefront of what people are searching for. And then lastly, I mean, I would be remiss on a, on a technology podcast to not mention AI, <laughs> the topic du jour for sure. I think, you know, generative AI developers and um, like deep fake technologies and things like that it remains to be seen how those will intersect in an elections context. I think people are rightfully worried and there is a lot of nervousness and seeking out of policy solutions for this. And I think a lot of that worry is is justified because we just don't know. And based on how 2016 went, it's almost like the unknown unknowns are perhaps the worst of all. And there is no amount of preparation that can really tell us or get us ready for, for what's to come on that front. And so with that, I would encourage, you know, platforms and regulators and civil society and others to really ready themselves for a lot of tricky situations and escalations that are going to come up that don't have precedent and that no one has dealt with before and that we're kind of figuring out as as a social construct for the first time. I know that we definitely want to touch on how AI is changing the landscape, both in terms of how disinformation spreads online, but also in terms of how social media platforms identify this content using automated systems. But first, I want to touch upon that problem of scale that you mentioned and yeah. how difficult that makes it for social media platforms to identify harmful content in the first place. I mean, especially when we think of the fact that people are posting content in all those languages, like you mentioned, and how content often appears in very different cultural contexts that platforms might not always understand. But they're going to have to, because like you mentioned in your report, elections are taking place in over 50 countries affecting, was it 2 billion voters? Over 2 billion, yeah. Over, over 2 billion voters. And I want to mention some statistics in 2021, Francis Hogan revealed that Meta spent around 87% of misinformation resources on English language content, even though approximately 9% of users primarily speak English. And in June 2022, the Meta Oversight Board also flagged investment in non-English languages as an area for improvement. So I was wondering if you could just talk about that, where social media companies should be looking to filter out misinformation, either in non-English languages or misinformation that can target specific communities or underrepresented groups going into 2024. Absolutely. I think there are a couple buckets here. The first thing I'll say is continued investment in things like in-house language support, robust public policy teams on the ground in those not even just regions, but countries with elections, because even among a single re within a single region, you can have kind of a variety of issues and risks that exist across countries. And so there is the sort of company investment in personnel that I think is is the biggest category. And then there's other smaller ones like deeper relationships with partner organizations and expanding. And, and I mentioned this in the report, trusted flagger programs or fact checking programs in those countries, specifically with activists that are on the ground and witnessing the kinds of harms that are happening sort of at the absolute lowest levels in the country with the people heading to the polls that are under attack based on mis and disinformation happening on the platforms and the kinds of violence that is being incited by content that the majority of people in Silicon Valley at headquarters in San Francisco or Menlo Park or wherever it is cannot grapple with because they just, you know, don't have that perspective. And so 
really investing financially and relationships and and building deep connections with those folks on the ground, specifically where there are elections will be key. And then also expanding election authorities to be included in fact-checking programs and trusted flagger programs so that you have, at least in places where election authorities have sort of a trusted relationship with the public, you have them also vouching for content on social media. And then, of course, to stop additional layoffs, I think, is another one. Uh, Fairly straightforward, but don't continue to reduce the number of people that are focused on these issues. Generally, don't reduce the number of people, uh, but especially focused on these issues ahead of ahead of next year. And then finally, language support, I think, is the biggest thing. There are so few people that speak a lot of these really kind of smaller but very critical languages that I mentioned. And so even if it's not full-time staff, making sure that you have people that you can call on as an organization through the oversight board or through other entities, contracts, et cetera, that you can get expertise on, even if it is just merely a translation with cultural context, at which point somebody on a policy team can then interpret it. So, And then the the actual last thing I'll say is upranking trusted sources. These companies maintain lists of what they consider authoritative information sources. And so when you search for something like election day or ballots or how should I vote or COVID-19, you get actually oftentimes content from authoritative sources up top. And so continuing to do that, but also auditing what comprises those lists to make sure you don't have corrupt sources or old sources or any of those things and making sure it's kind of up to date and accurate. Those all sound like really great strategies, especially like upranking or upvoting trusted sources and making sure that there are people involved in these companies to help with the language decision making when it comes to deciding which content can maybe be flagged as misinformation or disinformation. And these all kind of fall within the three P's that you talk about in your report, which are policy, process, and protocol, and the importance of enforcing all three of these before, during, and after an election to build trust with voters and promote transparency. So how do you view these three P's working together? And where do you see these strategies coming into play to promote all of these different P's during an election cycle? Absolutely. So I wrote this with the kind of thinking that the three P's were the bread and butter of what a company is doing. A social media platform in particular is doing to ready themselves for an election. And I think they're sort of that foundational component that helps prepare them and organize themselves and also build rapport and trust with the public to really believe that they are doing everything they can and, you know, appropriately preparing. And so you have policy, which is really the, do we have a precedent set here? Do we have a defensible approach to tackle this this escalation or this situation? And then um, protocol, which is what is the playbook that we're maybe following? Or should this situation arise, what are the 16 steps that we're going to take as an organization to tackle this? If we detect manipulated media, what are the what are the technologies we're going to rely on as an organization to say, is this manipulated media or is it not? Really having that protocol in place so that you're not figuring it out on the fly And then process. This is really the internal coordination and the pathways to ensure that you have appropriate leadership weighing in and the right stakeholders sort of opining on a situation and really greasing the wheels of everything that happens in the lead up. And I specifically mentioned the sort of before, during and after because I actually think those three periods and 
I go into kind of a little bit deeper in the report with definitions and things, but I think it is prudent to assign a risk category to those periods. And I talk about this in the report as well, because it actually changes how you approach your three Ps. The protocol 90 days out is probably different than the protocol on the day of the election. In the, in the EU, for example, there are certain stipulations around what isn't, a, in, isn't allowed in the week leading up or in the two weeks leading up. And so there, there is a lot of sort of nuance there. And I, in the report, encourage companies to really take that into, a, into account as they audit their three Ps and then also looking ahead, propose changes and updates to them to ensure that they are they are ready for whatever may come, including a potential insurrection, violence on the ground, election denial. Unfortunately, these days, nothing is off the table. So true. Yeah. You mentioned how social media platforms can partner with outside organizations or individuals to improve language or cultural understanding. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of civic engagement in supporting social media companies, often when misinformation or disinformation or other types of harmful content spreads online, it's due to societal beliefs or even a lack of trust in the platforms or in government or in policy. So how can companies promote civic awareness among their users or among their employees or elsewhere? Totally. I think there are the really obvious kind of external ways that they can build on top of their existing products. And so you can think of some of the the things I speak to in the external product changes section of the report, but, you know, friction when somebody's trying to reshare something that has been labeled as misinformation or in WhatsApp, you know, you have a label that says this has been forwarded many times, potentially adding context that the person sending it to you might not be able to totally vouch for what they're sending, but that it's been basically, you know, viral. And then labeling. And so, you know, Twitter did a really great job of this last election cycle where they were adding context about content. And it wasn't necessarily to debunk or label as misinformation, but rather add information to it to give the user a more well-rounded perspective on content that may be election or civic related. And then there's also the sort of lighthearted, fun civic engagement things like I voted stickers and picture frames that you can put your profile photo in and and sort of easier ways like that. But that's sort of one one piece of it. I think the other piece is that there is a big crop of, you know, first time voters that are are on TikTok and are on Instagram and and many social media platforms that are, like I said, heading to the polls for the first time. And so that, I think, is a unique opportunity to engage specifically like a new generation of voters and for companies to build trust with those folks in a way that maybe millennials and and boomers and, and other folks have maybe lost trust or are more aware of what happened in 2016. And so I almost think the companies have a rare opportunity to sort of reset the clock a little bit with a, with a brand new crop of voters. And I would encourage them to think through how they're doing that. TikTok in particular is supremely popular with, with Gen Z and mm-hmm. has a great opportunity and probably a responsibility to, to act accordingly and to, to use that responsibly in order to bring people accurate, mis- accurate information, not misinformation. And also, ensure that they're going to the polls and armed with at least a not necessarily the the policy views of one side or the other, but the desire to engage in civic participation. 
In addition to civic participation, do you think that the different niches that these various platforms captures should also affect their understanding of misinformation or the three Ps as well? So we know that TikTok, for example, largely skews towards a younger demographic, but it also has just different types of content. So it has shorter videos compared to Twitter, which is more of a text conversation based platform. And Instagram, we know, features more photos. So should that affect how companies approach content moderation? Absolutely. I think I even saw this firsthand when I went from a very similar sort of role at Instagram to Twitter, just the issues and the kinds of policies that I was thinking about and the escalations that I was managing from a policy perspective were just nuanced and different because one covered photo and media primarily and the other covered text. And the ranking models and the machine learning that goes into the, the foundations of these platforms also varies. And so as you think about the three Ps, a Twitch or a Discord or a TikTok actually has pretty different considerations and, and mitigation strategies than maybe a, a legacy player like a Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And, you know, you have threads that has come onto the scene. And like I said, Discord and Twitch and some of these um, newer platforms are actually going through their first big election cycle this this next year. And so it will be really interesting to see what strategies they take on and which ones they actually deprioritize just based on, you know, the format of their media, the size, the kinds of risks they see. You have, you know, YouTube, who has been in the game obviously a very long time, and then Twitch, which is, you know, a completely different animal altogether and, and something related to streaming, which has live streaming, which has its own, you know, host of considerations. And so I would encourage companies, and I actually do this in the report with threads as an example, but I would encourage companies to to go through the checklist at the end and say, what are the things that relate most to my product or my platform? And, and based on that, what are the kinds of risks that I should mitigate and holes to plug? That's great. And I know the checklist in the report is really comprehensive and gives companies really good strategies for like how to look at the actions that they're currently taking and then what they need to do to meet some of the goals that you set out in the report. And looking at that checklist, obviously, those are things that the companies need to prioritize. But those are also some things that potentially maybe the government could put instill some type of infrastructure to help support companies in their process to continue to regulate misinformation and disinformation and to hopefully limit it and completely minimize it from their platforms. So what role do you think the government plays in helping to police some false or harmful content on these platforms? And are there areas where the government either should or should not intervene in content moderation based on rights for freedom of speech and for content related to particular political parties or political viewpoints? Great question. I uh, I will take a global perspective on this one, just based on the EU in particular has really come out ahead on this. And in the U.S., we have a lot of great bills that have been proposed and that are kind of out there. And, and I would love to see them being advanced. But unfortunately, we have a, a Congress that I, you know, I'm not hopeful is going to move them along. Cap recently endorsed Warren's tech bill, and I would encourage folks to take a look. It's a really great solution to some of the problems that we're facing today. But in the EU, the DSA is actually a really great example of an an approach to regulate social media that is not deeply prescriptive and that takes into account the nuances of the different platforms that I just mentioned. And I heard this analogy, I can't remember where, but I will 
attempt to to re-say it, probably butcher it, but the DSA sort of gives the ingredients to bake the cake, but not the recipe. And also includes accountability in that it says, let us try your cake and generally kind of show us or tell us how you made it. But as long as you used our list of ingredients, it's broadly fine. And so I think that has been a really great model for what tech regulation could look like because it's allowing for that nuance. It's allowing for companies to do what they do best without stifling innovation, but also holding them accountable, forcing their hand to some degree at greater transparency reporting, at researcher access, at being clear with users about consent for for data tracking and cookies and and other kind of components of our experience online. And as we move into the fall, there will be um, really great sort of first-time reports that come out regarding DSA. I'm sure you both are familiar. And that will be a really interesting mile marker to see how is this going. And I was just at a conference last week and was speaking with an MEP from Italy who uh, worked on the DSA. And he said, I said, you know, how are you going to know if it's good? And he said, ask me in five years. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we don't know. But I think that's the first and primary example we have. And then, of course, smaller ones uh, like in the UK, of course, the online safety bill is moving full speed ahead. That will be interesting to see what happens there. Brazil has a has a misinformation law that they are chugging along with. And so as countries and jurisdictions and locales work on this, companies will have to ideally get in line. And that's the goal, right, is that the DSA comes out ahead and companies move up to meet the DSA stipulations as a floor. And the benefit of that is there will be things in the DSA that are so product and engineering and money intensive for the companies to implement that they will hopefully do it universally and that folks like you and me based in the U.S. and people outside the EU will also get the benefits of the DSA. I know I'm really looking forward to seeing how the transparency and the user controls and the DSA plays out. Yeah. I am curious because in addition to Brazil and the EU and the UK, a number of other governments have either proposed bills or already enacted laws that aim to address the so-called fake news or mis- or disinformation. And even though the DSA isn't prescriptive, I mean... Legislators have said we're not telling you what is political disinformation or not. We're not creating new categories of harmful information. There are other frameworks around the world that aim to do so. So I was just wondering, how are social media companies navigating this really complex patchwork of emerging fake news or misinformation laws around the world, especially since content isn't local, it's global, if a platform either takes down or keeps up content in one country that's going to affect what people see in other countries. So what should companies be thinking about there? Yeah. So today, it is very patchwork, as you said. And there are jurisdictions where outside of just the mis and disinfo space, there are stipulated types of content that are locally illegal. So you can think of Holocaust denial content in in Germany and Hungary and other European countries, where if you actually post that kind of content in the U.S., for a long time, social media companies wouldn't action it. Policies have since changed. But speaking back to 2017, that content wouldn't get action in the U.S. You fly to Germany and you'll actually not see that content because the companies will geogate 
so that any IPs located in Germany wouldn't see that content. And so that's kind of been the historic approach in India. The case, That's very much the case in Brazil as well. You have really strong technology regulatory bodies that stipulate what kind of content needs to be taken down for all intents and purposes. But, you know, the way the companies do it is they geoblock. As more and more and more regulations, though, come to be, this will be a really interesting wait and see approach for what happens and how companies tackle this globally, but also at a localized level. Like I said, I was just in Canada last week and the Canadian government entered into force C-18 in June of this year, which stipulates that publishers have to pay the companies to host online content. And a similar uh, occurrence happened in Australia not too long ago, and they ended up sort of striking a deal and, and all backing down. But in Canada, Meta and Google actually pulled all news content as a result. So they really put their money where their mouth was. And and I was I was navigating to the New York Times Facebook page one morning of the conference to see like what what does this look like? And it it was it was jarring to see no news content on my social media because I consume a lot of news. And so that was one kind of small but very significant example of the companies are actually just they're just saying, okay, we're just going to, you know, accept the hit to our profitability and accept the hit to our engagement and our all those incentives that I talked about in the beginning for the sake of not entering in this regulation that, that they just don't agree with. And so while I don't know that that's going to be the case everywhere, I think it will be really interesting to see what they choose to comply with, what they don't, and what, like I said, they change universally for everyone to get into compliance. But there will be things that even in, among the U.S. states, there will be specific state laws that likely are that go against one another if if passed. And so I don't have the answer here, but I'm hopeful that both we can use sense externally to push for what makes sense, but also that the companies will will come into compliance in a way that is universal and appropriate. Right. And even outside of Canada's Online News Act, we've seen tech platforms take actions that could definitely affect their relationship with news industries, I think, whether it's Elon Musk banning journalists yep. or mm -hmm. revamping the verification policy. I think I heard rumors that Twitter is going to stop allowing headlines and photos from news articles everywhere in the world. But I'm not sure Probably. that's actually happening. I wouldn't be surprised. I Nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he has a lot of... <laughs> his, his policies change so often, it's just hard to keep track of what's going on. But yep. a few years ago, Meta also revamped its ranking systems, right, to prioritize friends and family content and yep. de-rank news content. How do you think that will affect how people consume news or follow politicians or politics going into 2024? This is a great question and something I talk about in my report as well, which is be clear and transparent about what you are doing because the information ecosystem is controlled by a very few small number of extremely powerful players. And so even a small tweak, like although that, that wasn't small, but every day there are small tweaks happening to the ranking systems that prioritize content and deprioritize other content. And that that's okay and that makes sense. And these are for-profit businesses that have to do what they have to do. But there is a lack of transparency around that that I really think is absolutely critical and prudent ahead of next year because the inability to know what the inputs are or what the changes are and then, and then the polarization that occurs as a result of those changes can be very dangerous. And so I think... 
companies should take actions that they think are appropriate and make sense, but there should absolutely be boundaries and guardrails and transparency around that to inform users and to sort of shape the public discourse and build trust with users that are consuming so much content every day, news, family, friends, all of it. I think another new area that we're seeing companies grapple with now is figuring out how to tackle regulation and how to approach AI being this new type of tech that yeah. everyone's talking about. It's a really hot topic. Elon Musk is talking about it. And of course he is. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and there are there have been a lot of different approaches taken both by members of the U.S. government and by social media companies to figure out how to navigate this complex space in this latest technological evolution. And given the large amount of discussion about AI policy, where do you think social media companies play a role in dictating the terms of this discussion as it relates to moderating content that could appear as misinformation or disinformation? And what do you think would be good benchmarks for success when it comes to the companies looking at how they could successfully moderate content that is either generated by an AI or that, in other words, utilizes artificial intelligence to create harmful content? Yeah, great questions. It's so interesting because as we think about legacy players in the social media kind of landscape, you have you know, YouTube came onto the scene, Instagram, Facebook, even threads. They have had sort of a, a slow roll into a gradual scale up that has allowed, you know, growth and expansion and, and users to kind of adopt the product. And with that, they have been able to build trust and safety and mitigate a lot of those risks kind of as they've gone, right? It's like laying the train tracks down as as you sort of are chugging along. I think the difference with generative AI is that you have a few key players like OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, et cetera, that are already kind of saturated players in the market as far as legacy tech goes. And so when Microsoft or Google Bard or whatever the case is flips a switch, effectively millions of people instantly have the AI assistant or whatever it is in their pockets. And so with that comes... I mean, there's already so much responsibility from these platforms, but I think extra responsibility to do it in a prudent and high integrity and sort of trust and safety led way. And as you think about a, a generative AI, sort of Chad GPT-4, whatever platform you want to think about, a lot of the legacy mitigations that I talk about, even in my report, do not apply one-to-one. -one. And that's why there's a separate section on generative AI, because you can't really add friction or, you know, a, a label in the same way on top of a media you can on Facebook as as in ChatGPT. And so I think it's actually pretty foundational and, and sort of basic, which is like have usage policies that govern how users can use your products. And then on top of that, have election specific ones. Are you going to be a source for authoritative information? as a as a generative AI platform? And if yes, what are the strategies to prevent misinformation? What are the sources you're using to give authoritative information? How are those being audited? Are you transparent about those? I think there's a whole host of questions that I have not seen yet answered by generative AI developers. And I think like, before we get into any sort of like advanced techniques that maybe some of the legacy players are are able to think through, we actually have to answer like a fairly basic set of questions about the 
generative AI developers. And looking ahead to next year, I, I would really love to push push them and see them tackle this because we know there are going to be people who ask ChatGPT who to vote for <laughs> and when the election is. And if it enters a hallucination and somebody shows up at the polls on the wrong day or has well-intended misinformation because it just pulled from a source across the, the universe of the internet that was incorrect, there are no guardrails in place or boundaries right now. And so I think that's where we start. Speaking of guardrails and boundaries, I know you mentioned that you're not optimistic that Congress will put in place comprehensive, nuanced regulations when it comes to online safety or AI. I mean, even things like antitrust and privacy have generally stalled. I actually still remember back in 2018, after the Cambridge Analytica news coming out, Mark Zuckerberg coming before Congress and so many members expressing interest in comprehensive privacy legislation. And yet years later, here we are. But I was wondering, even with all of that, do you think that there are areas where Congress and social media companies can work together to strengthen safeguards against mis and disinformation in elections ahead of 2024? Absolutely. I mean, I think in in the U.S., we have a, a strong, sturdy First Amendment that protects speech and actually above all else political speech. And and I respect it and I understand it. I also think that there is a responsibility from platforms and from government to safeguard Americans from harm. And we saw in on January 6th what happens when, you know, those institutions kind of break down and are are corrupted. And so to prevent that kind of harm from happening and those kinds of threats to our foundational democracy, I absolutely think there is a a role for governments and for for platforms. And I think it's a lot of what I said, which is be transparent with users. Be clear. If, if you're not going to take down the speech, you can at least add information or context or friction or additional sort of information that at least empowers users to make a choice for themselves. I think historically part of the problem is that users consume what they see as fact and truth. And by educating users and empowering them, you can hopefully start to erode some of that polarization capacity that happens on social media without necessarily trying to take down the First Amendment or doing something sort of sort of uh, extreme like that. Yeah, I think definitely empowering users is huge and promoting transparency and trust between the companies and their users. Those are all going to be really, really huge going forward. And I think your report does a great job at outlining how companies can take steps towards promoting those goals. And at the conclusion of your report, you emphasize the importance of completing these tasks now in the anticipation of all these elections coming up in 2024. So looking at your report and the goals that you would like to see these social media companies hit, what would you like the companies to have as the biggest takeaways from your report? And where would you like to see next steps within the next year or so? Yeah, great questions. I think the biggest thing, and this is really based on my lived experience, and I touch on it kind of in in one of the P's, But I think the biggest thing is really building systems and process to handle the different types of situations and risks that come up. And it's impossible to anticipate all of them. I have been there and I recognize that. But it's also possible to anticipate a good fair bit of them, especially based on what we've seen with the last election cycle. 
And so I really want to impart on companies the importance of auditing what has happened in the past, ensuring you have the sort of defensible precedent that you can set or the policy that you can fall back on, the emergency mitigations that you can flip the switch on and be transparent about those things. And I think, you know, you and I or all of us understand the threats of adversarial actors. And so I am not expecting companies to say, okay, now we are going to blah, blah, and blah as it's happening, because that can also open themselves up to further further threats and risks. But I talk about this in the transparency section. Tell us about what happened last election cycle and how you have filled those holes and plugged those gaps and what you're doing ahead of the next election cycle and and maybe in a more robust way than than a single help center article or than a, a you know an op-ed by a VP right I, I have been on the other end of those and I know that they're well intended but the public really needs more and I think it's it's prudent and now is the time to act because we still have 14 months to go and it's going to be a, you know very very late if hashtag stop the steal becomes uh, you know a viral trending hashtag once again, and, and we end up in a situation like we were in the past. So that would be the biggest thing. <laughs> Megan, this has been so informative. I know that Thank you. <laughs> um, some of my biggest takeaways are that, I mean, social media platforms are these huge influential players who need a responsibility to understand and mitigate the risks on society. Of course, social media platforms can't do this alone. It also requires input from individuals or governments. Um, and it, it isn't an easy task, but from your report and from this conversation, I definitely think that there are steps we can take, whether that's transparency. The word transparency came up a lot, and I think that's really important just because it's so critical for people to be able to understand why they're seeing the content that they're seeing. The three Ps, policy, process, and protocol. Yes. And I might add a fourth P, which also came up, people. AI alone cannot mitigate mis or disinformation or harmful content. We also need people. So social media companies should stop firing people. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so Megan, thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you. Um, another plug for Megan's report, which is now available on the CAP website, Protecting Democracy Online in 2024 and Beyond. I highly recommend all of our listeners check it out. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Me too. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you.